Al Jazeera podcast. Just a heads up, this episode contains content that some listeners may find disturbing. No more beds, attached ventilators, ICU patients, no place in the ICU, no more extra beds here to receive any more injured. We are collapsing. We are collapsing. This is the reality for doctors working on the ground in Gaza. This is disaster. It's a real crisis. No any more functioning accident and emergency at Shifa Medical Complex. And Israel's attacks have been indiscriminate on Gaza's resources. They're targeting the food supply, they're targeting the sewage system, the emergency services that go to retrieve patients from under the rubble, the amb- convoys of ambulances, the paramedics, the journalists, the hospitals. With just days left of fuel and limited medical supplies, hospitals are on the verge of completely shutting down. The Gaza Health Ministry says the entire system is collapsing. Rights groups say relentless Israeli bombardments have internally displaced 1.5 million people, with the healthcare system on the brink of complete collapse. What can be done to save the people of Gaza? I'm Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Tanya Hash Hassan. I'm a pediatric intensive care doctor based in Canada at the moment. I'm also a humanitarian doctor and I work with Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders, essentially traveling to various places. My connection with the Gaza Strip even preceded my work with Doctors Without Borders. I've been going there for over 10 years uh, with a group of uh, physicians and surgeons to teach. And where are you coming to us from today? I am currently in Amman, Jordan, because I was meant to be going to the Gaza Strip this past weekend as part of our annual trip to teach. And uh, obviously that's not been canceled. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and so how are you staying in touch with your colleagues? As much as we can, we WhatsApp, we send voice notes on very, very rare occasions. We've had very choppy phone calls to each other, but it's mostly just through WhatsApp voice notes or text messages. They would send these very long voice messages talking about the desperation, the number of casualties, and how difficult things were. And then as time went on, they started talking about all the different things that got more and more difficult. Essentially, no running water, difficulties with access to different medications, unable to care for patients in a timely manner because they're coming in scores of hundreds of patients at once. Remember one of my colleagues saying there, there is no mass casualty protocol in the world that could deal with what we're seeing. And in many cases, those injuries are life-threatening. Hospital systems have collapsed. Could you paint a picture of the challenges that your colleagues have shared with you about the situation in hospitals right now? I can talk to you about two of the hospitals that I was just in communication with them about today. Al-Shifa Hospital is the largest trauma hospital in Gaza. 
It is in the area, which most of the hospitals in Gaza are in the area. Tens of thousands of civilians are seeking shelter in hospitals, which Israel is demanding that they evacuate. Shifa complex has 100,000 displaced families sheltering in that hospital and over 5,000 patients of the injuries of this war. The Ministry of Health... The Israeli Defense Forces have been warning to evacuate and uh, they can't evacuate. It's preposterous. There is no way you can evacuate these hospitals. The majority of Gaza's hospitals are in that area and they are more than full. You know, the capacity of Al-Shifa Hospital normally is about 700 patients. I don't know what the count is today, but a couple weeks ago, it was over 2,000 patients in Al-Shifa Hospital. They're caring for them on the floors, in between the beds, in the corridors, in the post-operative areas. And these hospitals are, are home at the moment to, for Al-Shifa, for example, to over 70,000 internally displaced people. About 70% of the Gaza population is displaced at this point. My friends and colleagues have talked about how their families have moved four and five times because every new home they move to, they get a warning to say it's going to be bombarded. And I can't imagine making these sorts of decisions as a family. And for our colleagues who don't leave the hospital because you cannot travel within the Gaza Strip at the moment, our colleagues sleep in the hospital. And for many of them, their families have evacuated south or have evacuated elsewhere. So I'll hear from the regular, they'll say, I haven't been able to meet, reach my family for the past 24 hours. And I'm very worried. Or they won't be able to reach their families. And then their daughter comes in on a stretcher critically injured, or their, their wife, or their entire family, or they hear while they're at work that their family has been killed. And what you're describing are just unimaginable circumstances. Uh, it, it's just difficult to uh, comprehend what these conditions are. I mean, you said there are significant shortages of water. In fact, we know Israel has targeted the water wells, the food supply, and sewage systems. In northern Gaza, Israel has targeted a critical water tank in Tal Azatar. The contents of the ruptured reservoir have poured out onto the streets. No bread, no food supplies for citizens, patients and medical teams. Consequently, medical teams... How is all of this impacting the people there? Are you seeing some of your colleagues getting thinner and weaker? Oh, absolutely. My sister, right before I came on the show, was asking me how one of my good friends is doing. And I pulled up a picture of him and I showed it to her and she said, no, 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 the other one. I said, no, no, this is him. She's like, no, he looks different. And I said, he's just lost a lot of weight. So yeah, absolutely. They're losing a lot of weight. They look exhausted. They look tired. And they, they become more and more expressionless. I think the one thing that's very clear is as time goes on, their faith in humanity and the outside world disappears and their faith in God strengthens. They'll say, you know, all we have is God and He is our best provider and we're going to rely on that for now. Another colleague of mine two nights ago sent a message to say in very vivid detail how they're not only killing people by attacking them through airstrikes, they're killing people by cutting off the water supply, the water wells, the fuel supply, the solar panels. 
they have destroyed the solar panels that are installed at the rooftop of the uh, Shifa building in uh, the Shifa hospital. Uh, this is considered to be a clear attack that destroyed uh, the solar panels that provides electricity to the main departments of the hospital besides the main provision. And then I quote him, he said, they are killing us in 1001 ways. It's just too much. It's just too much. I'm so sorry that you and your colleagues are experiencing all of this. Also, we've heard uh, reports, accounts that civilians are drinking unsanitary water. Yeah, certainly. So one of my colleagues was saying that they distribute uh, 30 milliliters or about an ounce per person per day of essentially clean water to drink for the hospital staff. So one ounce is really, it's really nothing. So yeah, they're, they're drinking unsanitary water. They're drinking mineral water that uh, it cannot be desalinated because the desalination plants require electricity. And if you don't have electricity, you can't desalinate the water. And if you don't have electricity and you're a doctor, it makes every minute of working a struggle. They were only able to power intermittently three areas, the operating rooms, the critical care unit, and the emergency department. And then the rest of the hospital, it's a very large hospital with multiple buildings, was pitch dark. And pitch dark with hundreds of thousands of people interning to place people sleeping in the quarters. So they sent me videos of them walking around in the middle of the night with a flashlight on their phone, trying not to step on the children that are sleeping in the quarters as they try to move from one part of the hospital to another. We are just completing our work in this darkness. No one can imagine even how the nurses will complete their job to give the medication, to have follow-up without any electromechanical uh, system, without the light even. It's a very catastrophic. And they sent another video of what it's like in the emergency department where they just get these scores of bodies coming in and they, you know, they check one and they're like, which means like, you know, God's mercy on his soul, he's dead. And then they check the next one and the next one and the next one. And they'll say the most difficult thing, even for them, you know, there are different things that are difficult, but unanimously what they all say is the children. The children are so hard. It's so hard to see children in the emergency department children who are marked with the letters unknown, and they'll give them a number, unknown 99. You know, this is the 99th ch child who we have not been able to identify because these children come in without their families, either because their families have been killed, their families are trapped under the rubble, their families are severely injured and maybe being transported elsewhere in the hospital. They come in, nobody knows who they are, they can't identify them. They're extremely scared if they're conscious enough to even know what's going on. They're calling for their parents. And so I think they all described that taking a, a particularly hard toll on them psychologically. Not having the tools or the time to relieve that suffering, which, you know, it's, that's a fundamental part of our profession. It's not just trying to cure or heal or save the lives of people. It's also trying to alleviate whatever type of suffering they have, and especially pain and fear 
and the suffering that comes with the process of dying. Dr. Hash Hassan paints a picture of what the humanitarian situation is like for women in Gaza. That's after the break. On the Inside Story podcast, we ask, does Israel pose a nuclear threat to the world? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking to Dr. Tanya Haj Hassan, who has regularly been in contact with her colleagues on the ground in Gaza. So... I've also been thinking about how particularly difficult all of this has been for women. We've heard just horror stories about mothers giving birth. Some women are using period-delaying pills and, and reusing menstrual products. And What are some of the things that women in Gaza need based on what you've seen and heard from your colleagues on the ground? I can paint a picture of what it's like as a woman. When you menstruate, you need feminine hygiene products. You need running water to keep clean, and they have neither of those things. You need private spaces to be able to change those feminine hygiene products. They don't have those things either. And then if they get pregnant, normally what would happen in any country with access to healthcare is you would receive prenatal and antenatal care. They don't have access to that. More than 50,000 women in Gaza are pregnant. 5,500 of them are expected to give birth this month, but it's unclear how they can reach hospitals through a war zone and can get the care they need. We've heard reports of women delivering in their homes in the rubble. We actually have a colleague whose family member had delivered 10 hours prior to an Israeli airstrike on her home. She and her 10-hour-old baby were killed. Mm. Can you imagine delivering at home because you cannot access a health facility? Having a baby that survived and yourself, you survived despite delivering at home. And you're so relieved. And then 10 hours later, both you and your baby and actually your entire extended family are killed in an airstrike. (sighs) We've seen pictures of umbilical cords clipped with hair clothespins. You know, we use sterile materials to clip umbilical cords. If you cannot keep an umbilical cord sterile, the the, the newborn baby is at a very high risk of developing an infection. And newborn babies don't have the immune system to fight infections well, and so it's very dangerous for their health. And so it's a, a all around an extremely dangerous process. Oh, my goodness. It's hard to hear all of that. It's very difficult. Um, Sorry, I need to collect myself. It's okay. I've tried really hard not to cry on here. And I, my uh, my family said every time they watch me interview, they're like, don't cry. Just whatever you do, don't cry. But it's, I think any human with a heart is either crying on the inside or the outside. Doctor, I I just can't move forward without asking. In seeing this whole crisis unfold, how are the healthcare workers that you're in touch with coping with all of this? Gazans are the most resilient people I've ever met. 
you know, and I think that resilience comes from a lifetime of learning how to love life and despite constant oppression and fear. And, you know, a child of age 11 today in the Gaza Strip would have lived through, this will be their fourth major aggression. They know what it's like to have airstrikes. They have lived through it. So they're very resilient. And I think their community plays a big part of that. And despite everything they're going through, I haven't heard a single word of hate or dehumanizing speech about anybody from my colleagues. I think it's just a testimony to who they are as people. And I think the best example of that is all the physicians who have refused to evacuate the hospitals, even when their entire families have evacuated the hospitals, even when over the weekend at least four hospitals were targeted in, in attacks by the Israeli Defense Forces, they refused to leave their patients. They've stayed. Dr. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has urged Israel to allow for what they're calling humanitarian pauses in Gaza. And earlier this week, U.N. agencies and NGOs made a rare joint plea for a ceasefire. At least 88 UN workers have been killed, making this the, the deadliest conflict for them. More United Nations aid workers have been killed than in any comparable period in the history of our organization. This issue of a humanitarian pause versus a ceasefire has become so political. And then you have Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has made it clear that he's not interested in either option. I think I know where you stand, but what do you think needs to happen? I think there's a, a very clear distinction between a ceasefire and a pause. I think the concept of a humanitarian pause is absurd. You don't stop bombardment for an hour so that you can trickle in food and water to a population that you subsequently kill an hour later. For anybody who, who can rationalize that, it's as absurd as many of the other things that have been suggested and used to justify and distract from the mass massacre and killing of a besieged civilian population. I, I, I think a humanitarian pause, like many other things, are, are smoke screens. Doctor, what message do you have for world leaders about the humanitarian situation as this bombardment of Gaza continues? I have been sharing the message for a month now. It's the same message. It just every passing day, it becomes more hopeless, more desperate as has every humanitarian organization I know since the start of this, a month ago. Violence is never the solution. A ceasefire is urgently, urgently and desperately needed. And anybody who precludes that process is complicit in the, the killing, the murder, in 1,001 ways that I described of an entire civilian population. And history will judge us. It will judge us as humanity, but it will put you, the world leaders, as the face receiving that judgment. So if you have a heart, 
then you will already know what the message is. Your heart would have already told you what needs to happen. But if that is not clear for you because you do not care about humanity or human life, then remember that history is going to judge you and that you are complicit in this massacre of an entire population. So my message would be a ceasefire, an immediate ceasefire, an opening of unhindered corridors for humanitarian aids, and the lifting of the siege. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Sonia Bagat and Chloe Kaylee, with Faranisa Campana, Suri El Khalili, Amy Walters, Khaled Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Zaina Badr, and me, Natasha Del Toro. In for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexander Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Nate Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.